about 13 months ago, we started the Gospel of Mark, and it's been a great journey, and Lord willing, we'll finish it today, but the life of Jesus Christ truly is remarkable, amen? I don't know about you, but I feel so much closer to my Savior now than I did before I started this, and it's just been amazing. Uh, I'll tell you this morning where we're going to go next, so hopefully you're, maybe some of y'all are curious about that. But if you have your Bible or on your device or your paper Bible in your lap, you can follow along here at Mark chapter 16, verse 9. We're going to go from 9 to 20, and we'll finish the Gospel of Mark today. So uh, you're welcome to follow along on the screen uh, uh, on either side of me as we read God's Word this morning. It says, very, very early on the first day of the week, which, what's the first day of the week? Sunday, obviously, right? After Jesus had risen to life, he appeared to Mary Magdalene, Earlier, he had forced seven demons out of her. She left and told his friends who were crying and mourning. Even though they heard that Jesus was alive and that Mary had seen him, they would not believe it. Later, Jesus appeared in another form to two disciples as they were on their way out of the city. But when these disciples told what had happened, the others would not believe. Afterwards, Jesus appeared to his 11 disciples as they were eating. He scolded them because they were too stubborn to believe the ones who had seen him after he had been raised to life. Then he told them, go and preach the good news to everyone in the world. Anyone who believes me and is baptized will be saved. But anyone who refuses to believe, will, believe in me will be condemned. Everyone who believes me will be able to do wonderful things. By using my name, they will force out demons. They will speak new languages. They will handle snakes and drink poison, and they will not be hurt. They will also heal the sick by placing, them, placing their hands on them. After the Lord Jesus had said these things to the disciples, he was taken back up to heaven where he sat down at the right hand of the side of God. And then the last verse, I'm going to have you read with me aloud, if you would, on verse 20. Then the disciples left and preached everywhere. The Lord was with them, and the miracles they worked proved that their message was true. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that it is true. Father, I pray that you would help me get out of the way and just make the truth of God become obvious to not only our minds, but to our hearts and we thank you that the Holy Spirit helps us with that. And we thank you in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. And we are thankful for God's word. So you may notice some notes in your Bible. Notes that say, like asterisk, the better manuscripts don't include this passage. Or you may have a Bible that it ended with verse 9 and you don't even have, I mean, verse, verse 8, and you don't even have a 9 through 20. It's because there's been a lot of discussion through the years as to whether these verses should be included in the gospel. Now, let me just say on the onset, we have all of God's Word, okay? The question is, do we have some extra notes and little things that, that scribes have added to help us understand? Yes, there are, there are some things like that, but we're not missing anything. So when you hear skeptics who will say, well, what about the Gospel of Thomas? The Gospel of Thomas, there's only a handful of manuscripts and none of the early church fathers recognized it as scripture. A lot of them were written by what was called Gnostics, who were heretics. And they tried to write gospels, like the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Mary, to add into the Bible to prove that Jesus wasn't who they, that everybody else believed that he was, that he was, not, that he was not God, he was just a man. And so you see a lot of fake scripture floating around. 
And we know that that's not true. But then it, we also, some, in some manuscripts have some notations written that other man, manuscripts don't. But again, we're talking incredibly minor stuff. For example, the spelling of a word. Like in, in a few manuscripts, it might be spelled wrong where the scribe made a little mistake. But if you've got literally 25,000 other manuscripts that show that these handful are wrong, you can put that together. And that, that's the power of God having the persecution come on the church because what persecution did when the Romans persecuted the first century believers, they were copying scripture as fast as they could because every time that believers got arrested, you know what they did to their Bibles? They burned them. So they were copying as fast as possible, spreading the word. So when the Roman Empire smashed Christianity, all it did was like when you smash a, a fire, the sparks fly everywhere and Christianity spread around the world and so did the manuscripts. So if there was like one original Bible, you know, in some museum, and we all were comparing with that, what if someone changed the original? How would we know? But if I have the original and I change it, but out there there's 25,000 copies that all say, wait a minute, you changed something here. We've got copies of copies of copies that match each other, and yours doesn't. That's the power of God's preservation on it. So there's... Uh, there's a lot of reasons to, I believe, after a lot of studying, because I've been actually working on this, because I knew the ending was coming, yeah, obviously, uh, but I've been working on this for five weeks on what to do with this passage right here, and whether to actually even include it or not, but I've chosen to include it for several reasons. I, I can't go into all the hours of, I could spend just an hour, the whole hour on just this topic, but number one, many of the early church fathers who lived at the same time as Christ, or at the same time as the Apostle Paul, quoted from this passage. That tells me that they considered it scripture. And that's really close to the time that it was written. Um, there's also, in some of the manuscripts where it's left out, they leave a long blank section as if they meant to put it in but didn't finish. Which was, a, which was not a normal way of ending a book. They didn't normally leave that long blank section. So there's also, uh, some of the skeptics will say, well, there's 17 new words in this passage that Mark never used before. Well, in most of those cases, there's a good reason. For example, Jesus always referred to his disciples by what number? The 12. Well, how many does he have now? So for the first time, the word Mark uses the word 11. He never used it before. Well, it's called circumstances that changed. And there's a lot of things that had changed to, in, to introduce the new words that he was using. Um, and so... Uh, I don't want to cover everything. Another theory is that Peter, who was the primary source for Mark writing this, got arrested. And Mark's like, well, how do I finish? And, then it lay, and so he finished the manuscripts, and those went out. But then when Peter got released, he finished the Gospel of Mark, and that's why it looks different than some of the others. That's a pretty reasonable theory. There's a lot of theories like that. But I believe that however this was finished, God used it, and it's meant to be in there. And here's the biggest thing. If for some reason we say that we're wrong, or I'm wrong, that, it's, that it wasn't meant to be included, let me tell you that there's nothing in these 12 verses that contradicts anything else in the Bible. In fact, it quotes from all, all, all the other three Gospels and the book of Acts. So there's, ref, there's uh, references to other parts of the Bible that make it very scriptural. So some of you are old enough to remember, not my, in 1957, who put out the, the satellite Sputnik? 
the Russians did, the Soviet Union, was, as it was called back then. And there was a, a big space race. Okay? The United States and Russia were involved in a Cold War. We hated each other. And those of you who are my age or older, remember, remember the civil defense drills in school? Like the bell would go off, you'd go out in the hallway, and you'd put your hands behind your neck, and you'd kind of just bow down against the wall as if that was going to stop a nuclear bomb. But anyway, you'd have... And then, uh, and then in 1958... We put a monkey in space. Anybody know the monkey's name? I'd be really impressed. It was Ham. Who said Ham? Oh, good job, Eric. Okay, this is Eric. Eric and Lisa are with us for the first time. Give them a hand. We're glad they're here. Good job. Eric's smart. All right. <laughs> good deal. So, uh, and then in, uh, in 1961, the Russians put a man in space. Know the name, Eric? Man, you are good. Good deal. All right. So, and then... Uh, in 1962, John F. Kennedy gave the space race speech about how we were going to invest as a country in the space race and we were going to win the space race. And in 1969, when I was five years old, we put a man on the moon, unless you're a conspiracy theorist and you can see the shadows don't match up. But anyway, uh, so, but this was America's mission. This was a great mission. This was what everybody got behind. This is when little boys and girls started saying, when I grow up, I want to be an astronaut. You know, and I'm sure in the Soviet Union, they wanted to say, when I grow up, I want to be a cosmonaut, right? Okay. And so the, literally the world changed and was on this mission. Of course, now other countries have joined the space race and lots of countries have satellites in space and now we have even SpaceX and all that stuff. But let me tell you that as God's people, we have a much bigger mission. We're not trying to find life in outer space. Maybe there is, maybe there's not. But we're trying to give life here on planet Earth. We're, there, you know, while people are trying to put a man on the moon, we're trying to let the man, Jesus Christ, be known around the world. And we have a much more, not only a bigger mission, but a much more important mission. So this passage here, right, we're going to divide up into four areas. First of all, there's the crisis. Then there is the commission, or the mission, and there's the confirmation of the mission, and then there's the commitment to the mission. So let's start here in verse 9. So very early, another gospel tells us, even while it was yet dark, on the first day of the week. That's important, because this changed the worship of God, as far as the day, the day of worship. In Acts chapter 20, you see the believers, and you see this pattern throughout the first century, that on the first day of the week, that's when they gathered together. And it says here that they gathered together to break bread. Do you think that's talking about lunch? No, it's talking about communion on the first day of the week. Now, we have friends who are Seventh-day Adventists, and you have even Seventh-day Baptists, and Seventh-day this or that, and people who disagree strongly, and they think that worship it still should be on Saturday. But you see that nowhere in the New Testament. You don't see believers gathering together on the Saturday. You see now, because of the resurrection, it has shifted to Sunday, and even specifically Sunday morning. So don't let that confuse you if someone says we're worshiping on the wrong day. In fact, there's a certain large group of Seventh-day Adventists that believe that the mark of the beast is Sunday worship. That literally, by you being on church on Sunday morning, you're taking the mark of the beast. Pretty extreme, but yes, that's, that's the case. But you see this, there's tons of verses here that make that very clear. In fact, Paul, knowing that the, that the Corinthian church was going to be gathered together on the first day of the week, he said, hey, I'm coming into town, 
Everybody start saving up some money and setting aside a special offering for the poor widows in Jerusalem whose husbands have been killed. So I'm going to take up a special offering and I'm going to do it when you guys worship and I'll be there. So let everybody set aside an offering on the first day of the week. You see that pattern very clear. And in Revelation chapter 1 verse 10, John is isolated on the Isle of Patmos and he says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. He now calls the first day of the week the Lord's day. So it's extremely clear that the first day of the week is, is the day of worship. But there, that doesn't mean, though, that it's the new Sabbath. Okay, don't get confused by that. There's several views of the Sabbath. Number one is, there's people who do believe you should keep Saturday as the day of worship, as a Sabbath, okay? And there's people who also believe that Sunday is now the new Christian Sabbath. In fact, our country's history, a lot of Puritans believe that, and I believe that they were wrong, but that's why you saw blue laws, stores closed on Sundays, and you still see that. And I think that's still a good idea to, so that employees don't have to work and then go to church, but it's not because Sunday is the Sabbath. Saturday is still the Sabbath. The word Sabbath means seventh. It's Saturday is still the seventh day of the week. Then there's people who believe that the Sabbath was only under that um, divine monarchy where God was king and, and that was a law for Jews only, but not for believers around the world. I don't believe that one either. But the fourth one is the one that I hold to, and that is that the Sabbath... Hold on, I lost my slide here. Forgive me here. There we go. There we go. All right, that the Christ is our Sabbath. So every day we rest in Christ. Every day. And Paul even says in another epistle that, you know, don't, don't bicker over days because Christ is our Sabbath. Now, we, we honor the resurrection on the first day of the week. But if you know Christ as your Savior, you're no longer trying to work to please God. You are resting and you rest in the work, finished work of Jesus Christ. Now, this verse goes on to say that he appeared to Mary Magdalene. And it's interesting. Some skeptics say, he just got done talking about Mary. Now all of a sudden he's going to say, Mary, as if she needs an introduction, the one that got the seven demons passed, cast out. And that's, some of the skeptics say that's why this passage should not be included. But I think Mark's doing something more important here. He's saying the one that Jesus chose to reveal himself to as his first and key and primary witness is a woman who used to be immoral with mental health issues and demon possession. This is who I'm choosing as my first witness. Okay, now keep in mind that in those days, there was different categories of people who couldn't even testify in court. Number one was shepherds, because shepherds were pretty much the, out this, the, uh, the dregs of humanity. You know, if you had a criminal history, the only job you could probably get was being a shepherd. The second category of people that couldn't testify in court was women, because most men being patriarchal and their thinking like that, just thought women just gossip. We're not even going to listen to their testimony. And this is who Jesus chooses as his primary witness to the resurrection is a woman with mental health issues, demon possession, and a checkered background. And, and this, is, this tells us that, you know, this isn't legend. People say that, you know, it wasn't until around 325 AD that people started believing Jesus was God. And it's just a legend that he was just a good teacher, but then they elevated on it. No, not at all. Legends aren't made up of this stuff. This is history. If you're making up a religion, would you say, hey, Peter, John, James, let, let's make up a religion. Let's, let's say Jesus wasn't just good teacher, God. Okay, great. And let's say that, Peter, you denied him three times. What? 
What do you mean? We're making this stuff up. Make me look good. No, no. We're gonna... You wouldn't make that stuff up and say, hey, let's pick as our first witness a mentally ill woman who's demon-possessed. Let's pick her. The only reason they wrote this is because that's what happened. It's because it was true. This isn't legend. This is, this is history. And you have believe... Also, believers don't die for legends. And not only the disciples, the eleven according to history, died for that, except for the uh, Apostle John. But thou tens of thousands of believers died because, hey, kill me. I saw him. He walked the earth for 40 days. I touched the scars. I felt his side. Kill me if you want to, but I can't deny what I saw. And they died for what they believed. That's not legend. That's history. So she left and told his friends. And they were crying and they were mourning. Why? Because they thought Jesus was still dead. And why? Did they think Jesus is still dead? Even though, how many times did he tell them in the week coming up to his death? How many times did he tell them, I'm going to rise from the dead? Three times at least. But, you know, we, don't, we tend to believe what we want to believe. And, and even though that they heard that Jesus was now alive, and Mary said, hey, I saw him. They're just dismissing, oh, you're just a woman. What do you know? And here's the key word, they would not believe. It's not that they could not believe. It's not that there wasn't enough evidence to believe. They didn't want to believe. And why? We could get into all that, but people sometimes get caught in their own pity and wallow in it. But there's something going on here where there's a block. Do you know someone like that? Where they've seen enough truth. <laughs> they've seen a change in you. They've seen prayer answered, but they just don't want to believe. And, and the, the really the answer isn't more arguing, more debating, more evidence, more archaeology. No. The answer is prayer. We need to pray just like Paul did for the Jews that, that, that Satan, who is the God of this world, would lift the blinders from their eyes and the scales will be removed so that they can see the light of the glorious gospel. That's what we need to do. We just pray. Not just pray, but you know, pr first pray. I'm not saying don't continue to have loving discussions. And let me give you a little piece of advice. If you're ever talking to a non-believer and things on one side or the other start to get heated, shut it down, shut it down. You are not going anywhere. The wrath of man does not accomplish the will of God, <laughs> okay? If you can't keep it in a loving tone and where you're having a great discussion, then you need to just shut it down, but primarily pray for those people that Satan would be removed so they could see the light of the gospel. So Jesus appeared in another form. Now, Jesus, it says that Jesus, we read this later, that Jesus veiled himself, their eyes, so they couldn't see. So they, they're seeing Jesus, but they're not recognizing him. And Jesus is doing this on purpose. He's not letting them recognize him yet. Now, I don't think Jesus is like morphing into something. He's not shift-shaping or anything like that. Okay, he just looks different to them so they don't recognize him. And he does this to two disciples. Now, this is not two of the 12 or the 11 are left. We know that this is another two. We'll talk about that in a second. And these guys are on their way out of the city, and the city is Jerusalem. Now, if you don't mind, I'm going to go down a rabbit hole here, okay? <laughs> I'm, like a railroad track here, Mark 16 and Luke 24 are like two rails on the same track. So I'm going to shift tracks here for just a second. And if you don't let me go, I'm going to preach to you basically a, lo a large portion of Luke since he mentioned these two disciples. So Luke 24 says, the same day, two of his disciples, and again, not part of the 12, they were going to the village of Emmaus, or walking out of Jerusalem, seven mile walk, and then Jesus is walking with them. He says, while they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself drew near. And again, 
If you're thinking of someone you've been trying to share Christ with, that's what you need, is for Jesus to draw near to them. And so, and he went, and he went with them. He started walking with them. This was not uncommon. If, if a Y in the road, two, people, you know, two paths merged, which was very common leaving Jerusalem, you know, the people would say, hey, can I walk with you? And you say, sure. And you walk along. And it says, but their eyes were kept from recognizing them. This is what Mark calls in another form. This is what's keeping them from recognizing Jesus. So he said to them, say, hey, so what, what have you been talking about, you know, on your walk here? And they stood still looking sad. They just stopped in their tracks like, what do you mean? What are we talking about? Watch this here. And it says, and then one of them named Cleopas, that's how we know it's not of the 12. He answered and said, are you the only, the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know what we're talking about? The things that have happened in these days? And he said to them, what things? Jesus is you know, playing dumb here, just asking questions like Jesus often does. And he said to them, the, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people. Now look at those words there in purple. Do you see anything wrong with that? Yeah, yeah. They didn't say he was God. They're saying he's a mighty prophet before God. They've totally missed who Jesus is. Jesus isn't a prophet pointing the way to God. He's God pointing his way to himself. That's what sets Christianity apart from every religion in the world. Every other religion in the world has a, a Buddha, a Muhammad, a Shinto, or whoever may be pointing the way to God. Jesus comes to earth and says, no, I am God. Here I am. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus doesn't present himself as pointing to the way, but points himself as the way. And, and they, they go on to say, and how our chief priests and our rulers. And again, hasn't this been the theme through Mark? Who is Jesus' rivals? Who is his arch enemies? Who are the bad guys? It's the religious people. And can I tell you today, nothing's changed. The biggest injury to Christianity are people who claim to be Christian and are not. And the television and the media is just covered with them. And it's funny how the media just loves it. You know, how many have ever heard of Westboro Baptist Church? Westboro Baptist Church is a cult. It's a little tiny church of like 15 people. And it's up there in Kansas and it's not like any other Baptist church I've ever heard of. They're wacko, they're crazy, they're evil. But every time the media wants a Baptist opinion or any evangelical opinion, they run to Westboro Baptist Church. Like nobody even goes there and they're extremists. But people will use them and point to that. And there's always been that way. And, and here are the people who not only rejected Jesus, but killed him, were religious people. So watch out for that. I, I know how people will say, well, I go to the church. Yeah, they use the Bible. Pfft. Jehovah's Witnesses use the Bible. Mormons use the Bible. There's a lot of people who use the Bible. In fact, they use and abuse the Bible. So not everybody who names the name of Christ is Christian, right? And in fact, one of the reasons we know that Christianity is true is because Jesus told us it would be that way. Jesus says, you know, when the judgment comes, the majority of people will say, oh, Lord, Lord, haven't we done wonderful things? He'll say, I never knew you. And so we should not be surprised that the majority of people who say they're Christian are not. Jesus said it. Now, don't take, don't misunderstand what I'm saying here, okay? I'm not saying we're the only ones. No, there, thank the Lord, there are millions of Bible-believing great churches. There's a lot of really great churches in Pearland. There's a lot of, all over the great city of Houston. So I'm not trying to, whenever you hear a preacher say, well, we're the only ones teaching the truth here, or we're the only denomination, or anything like that, man, run fast and far from that. So I'm not saying that, but I am saying what Jesus said, that the majority of people, that broad is the way that leads to destruction, but narrow is the way, and few 
Everybody say few. Few there be that find it. So when you are at work and you feel like you're in the overwhelming minority because you're a believer, welcome to Jesus' world. He, he told you it would be that way, and that ought to actually be reassuring to us that he was right. But we had hoped that he, that this Messiah, was the one to redeem Israel. Now, redeem, that means take something that has no value and restore it to where it does have value. Okay? And they said, yes, besides all this, it's now the third day since these things have happened. And of course, maybe they're referencing that on the third day he'd rise again, and they're thinking it hasn't happened, but ironically, who are they walking with? But people are looking, what kind of redemption were they looking for? They were looking for him to redeem Israel back to its, where we're the empire and Rome is destroyed. Because at one time, under Solomon, Israel was the empire that ruled the world. Israel had the wisest king in the world, the richest king in the world, the biggest influence to the world, and now all that was gone. They're wanting to restore the glory days. They're wanting to pay less taxes. <laughs> They're wanting to be not persecuted by Roman soldiers. They're wanting that kind of redemption. My question for you this morning and for me is what kind of redemption are we looking for? I've, I've seen this happen often where someone will look up our church and they'll call me and they'll say, hey, do you do marriage counseling because we're really having a hard time? I'm like, sure. And they'll even start coming to church here for a while. I'll do marriage counseling with them. Their marriage gets better and guess, what's hap guess what happens? They stop coming to church. The redemption they were looking for was a healing for their marriage. I've seen people lose their job unexpectedly and now they're desperate and all of a sudden now they're in church and they're regular and all that stuff like that and they're like, Pastor, would you pray for me? I really need a job. Things are going really tight. I'm getting behind on my mortgage, on and on and on. And then they find a job and guess what happens? They stop coming to church because what kind of redemption were they looking for? See, Israel was looking for the redemption of their politics. Jesus was looking for redemption of their soul. It wasn't a social problem. It was a sin problem. And, and, and then let me ask you, what are you looking for? What kind of redemption are you looking for? I hope you're looking for the redemption of your soul and that your biggest enemy is you. And that you would see that I need Christ to change me. You see, if you went to a counselor or psychologist 30 years ago and you start talking about your problems, they would try to help you fix your character flaws. Now today you go to a therapist or a psychologist, they tell you everything that's wrong with you. Well, your parents didn't treat you right. Or, well, the public school system didn't treat you right. Or people are just homophobic. Or they're this, they're whatever. And so the, you need to fix, you need to get a new set of friends. You need a divorce. You need to whatever. Because the problem's outside of you. No, no. The problem's inside of you. Okay? 95% of, your, of the, your problems aren't your problems. It's your reaction to your problems. How could Paul in prison write the book of joy, Philippians, when he's being persecuted and in chains. He didn't say, oh, woe is, woe is me, this Roman government, they, they've arrested me, I haven't done anything wrong. He's just saying, hey, it doesn't matter what situation I am, I can be content. That's, that's where the real issue lies, and that's what Jesus can help us all with. And he said, and some of the men from our group, and he uses this phrase, our group, and this is talking about, I think, that the 120 that will show up at Pentecost, but it's, it's a larger group than the disciples. They went to the tomb, and they, they found that just as the women had said, so they're, they're even acknowledging that Peter and, Jane, Peter and John saw this and that they confirmed that what Mary Magdalene said was true, but they didn't see Jesus either. So it's just like, they don't know, they're not sure what to believe in this situation. Then Jesus asked the two disciples, why can't you understand? 
And, and you could take all my tone out of that. Why can't you understand? It's a pretty harsh statement just on face value, isn't it? I mean, Jesus is being super direct here. And he goes on to say, well, well, let me add this thought here. It says, we often read the Bible through the lens of our own pride and selfishness. That's how we tend to read the Bible. See, for example, we, we often read seeking wisdom to know what to do. Like the Bible is an instruction book, which that's true. But many times that's what we're looking for first and foremost. We, we um, sometimes read seeking comfort so that we know how to feel better. We sometimes read seeking a blessing to know a better situation. We sometimes read seeking advice to know how to raise kids. We sometimes read seeking instruction to know how to have a better marriage. But here's what we need to do. We must first read seeking Jesus and to know him better. When you open the Bible, when you open your YouVersion app or whatever you're doing to absorb God's word, your first and primary goal is to know Jesus better. We, we often go to the scriptures, man, I wish I need an answer for my problem. And sometimes worse yet, we do Bible roulette. You ever done that? Like point, you know? <laughs> that, don't do that, okay? Story goes, one guy did that. He flipped the Bible because he wanted to know. He was really depressed and discouraged. And he oh, closed his eye and all he says, and it says, and Judas went out and hung himself. And he's like, oh, no, no. And he flips again. And he goes, and he goes go and do thou likewise. <laughs> and he's like, no, 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 no. And then he flips again. And what you do, do quickly. Oh, <laughs> and he's like, oh, you know, you don't play Bible roulette. When you open your Bible in the morning, it should be, Lord Jesus, help me to see your face this morning. Help me to seek you to know you better. Yes, you're looking for answers to your problems. Yes, you need guidance on whether to take this job or not take this job. To date this person or not date this person. You've got all kinds of decisions to make. But if you will know the one who is wisdom, all the other ducks will get in a row. Seek to know him first. And it says, do you believe all that the prophets have said? Another rhetorical question by Jesus here. And that's powerful. He said, didn't you know that the Messiah would have to suffer before he was given his glory. You see, they wanted Jesus to be glorified and set up as king. But the Bible made it very clear that the Messiah must suffer first, then be glorified later. It's like they were looking into a distance and there was two mountaintops. And you know, when you're far away, the two mountaintops look side by side. And suffering Savior, conquering King. Which one, if you're under oppression of the Roman government, would you want to happen first? You want conquering King first. But if they studied the Messiah carefully in the scripture, they'd have to say, no, he has to be a suffering servant first before he can be a conquering king. Verse 27 says, and Jesus explained everything written about himself in the scriptures. Which scriptures? Look at this. Beginning with the law of Moses. What's the law of Moses? The first five, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and the books of the prophet. In other words, everything after the Torah was called the prophets. So in other words, all 39 books of the Old Testament, Jesus says, watch this. I'm here, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. And the whole Old Testament is about me. And, and he taught them that. And that's the way we need to teach the Bible. Because all of the Bible points to Jesus. All of it does. It's all about Jesus. It's all about the gospel of Jesus. There's an amazing song. I thought about playing it for you this morning, but I think it might have a better impact if I just read it. It's by Aaron Jeffrey called He Is. And just bear with me for a moment here. And just think with me as you know your Bible. In Genesis, he is the breath of life. 
In Exodus, the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he is our high priest. Numbers, the fire by night. Deuteronomy, he's Moses' voice. In Joshua, he is salvation's choice. Judges, lawgiver. In Ruth, he's the kinsman redeemer. First and second Samuel, he is the trusted prophet. In Kings and Chronicles, he is sovereign. Ezra, a true and faithful scribe. Nehemiah, the rebuilder of broken walls and lives. In Esther, he has Mordecai's courage. In Job, the timeless redeemer. In Psalms, he is our morning song. In Proverbs, wisdom's cry. Ecclesiastes, the time and season. In Solomon, he is the lover's dream. In Isaiah, he's the prince of peace. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. In Lamentation, he is the cry for Israel. In Ezekiel, he's the the call from sin. In Daniel, the stranger in the fire. That's my favorite one. In Hosea, he is forever faithful. In Joel, he is the spirit's power. In Amos, he's the arms that carry us. In Obadiah, he is the Lord, our Savior. In Jonah, he's the great missionary. In Micah, the promise of peace. In Nahum, he is our strength and our shield. In Habakkuk, Zephaniah, he's the pleading for revival. In Haggai, he restores the lost heritage. In Zechariah, our fountain. In Malachi, he's the son of righteousness with healing in his wings. And then he shifts to the New Testament. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he is God, man, Messiah. In the book of Acts, he's the fire from heaven. In Romans, he's the grace of God. In Corinthians, the power of love. In Galatians, he is our freedom from the curse of sin. In Ephesians, he's our glorious treasure. In Philippians, he's the servant heart. In Colossians, he's the Godhead Trinity. In Thessalonians, he's our coming king. In Timothy, Titus, and Philemon, he's our mediator and our faithful pastor. In Hebrews, he's the everlasting covenant. In James, he's the one who heals the sick. In First and Second Peter, he is our shepherd. In John and Jude, he's the lover coming for his bride. And in Revelation, he is our king of kings and lord of lords. It's all about Jesus, isn't it? And, and that's the way we need to read our Bible. Yes, we need to read our Bible seeking for solutions to our problems, but we need to seek our Savior first. In fact, um, if you're curious about where we're going next, we're going to go to the book of Genesis. How many chapters is Genesis? It's 50. <laughs> so we'll be here for a while. We'll probably have grandkids born during this time. I don't know. But anyway, well, I'll just tell you that the Gospel of Matthew took us... T- it was 28 chapters took us two years to the day so I'm taking this to be two and a half because the the narrative will go a little quicker but anyway if you're new to revolution that's what we're committed to we're committed to verse by verse teaching of the word of God we as a church study it we our life groups will talk about it we'll do scripture reading plans about each book but let me continue with Mark 16 so when and of course now we're in Luke on the, the parallel rabbit hole here when the two of them came near the village they were going which was Emmaus Jesus said to them seemed to be going a little farther. So he's like, he's going to keep walking while they're turning off the road. And they begged him, hey, stay with us. It's already late. The sun's going down. Not safe, in other words, to be traveling by yourself. So Jesus went in the house to stay with them. That kind of reminds me of John. You know, if I'm knocking at the door. If any man will ask me in, I'll come in and sup with him. I think it's a kind of an allusion there to that. Not I-L-L, but A-L-L illusion. After Jesus sat down to eat, he took some bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to them. 
What is that a picture of? The communion, the Lord's Supper, right? And it's interesting that when he did that, at once they knew, oh, it's Jesus. Because he blessed it the same way. He distributed the bread the same way. And it's like the lights came on. And they knew who it was. This is why communion is so important to the Lord's church. Because when we do communion, it is a physical, tangible way to say, this is what Jesus did for me. His body was broken. His blood was poured out. And it is a physical way to remember, to remind ourselves what Christ has done. And it's then we like, yes, now I know Jesus even better through the communion of the Lord's saints. And so they said to each other, man, didn't our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? That phrase there is so important, open the scriptures to us. How, this is how we can, so question is, how can we experience a burn in our hearts when the word of God is open to us? Let me just give you some, some biblical principles in general. So, because let me ask you a question. When's the last time you've been taught the Bible or you opened the, your Bible and your heart burned within you. And again, I'm not talking about an emotional experience necessarily. Emotion is good, but it's never meant to be separated from seeing Christ logically, okay? So, when's the last time that happened? You know, it's interesting. I remember when I was a youth pastor at, at the church on the north side that was there for 10 years, and I, there was this one kid, he was a, a deacon's son, and he was, he was there for every Sunday morning, every Sunday school, every youth activity, all kinds of stuff. His name was Jeff... And, and yet, when it came to teaching time, he'd put his hands down like this and basically take a nap. And other kids were like all plugged in and like, yeah, I don't know, all excited and all that stuff, but here's Jeff. And I'm thinking, okay, I know I'm not that boring. And other kids seem to be into it. So what's the deal? So after class, I said, hey, Jeff, man, what's up? When I'm teaching, you're just like face down. He's like, oh, I've heard everything in the Bible before. I'm like, yeah, so what? I have too. I, became, I was born again when I was age nine. I went to Bible college. And yet when I study the word of God, it burns in my heart. It's just like, wow, this is so amazing. And if you get to the point where it doesn't, there's something we're doing wrong. The problem isn't with the word. The problem is with ourselves. And let me just give you five tips that will help you with that. Number one, you need to pray for a humble heart so that the Holy Spirit of God speaks to you. Don't, don't just read just for reading's sake to check it off the you version. Okay, I'm done for the day. Boom. Ask God because pride is what starts blinding us. Obadiah verse 3 says that the pride of your heart has blinded you. And when we think, I know, I know, I know. You ever had a toddler do that to you? Hey, let me help you with that junior. Oh, no, I know, I know, I know. You can't tell them anything. They, they're just stubborn heart. You know, we can do that as, as adults too, right? So number one, pray for a humble heart. Number two, confess and repent of sin that is hindering your relationship with God. Another reason the word of God can become cold to you is because you've got something in your life you're not repenting of. You're living in some type of sin. There's, we all sin. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about when you know you're holding on to something that you know is wrong, but you're going to do it anyway. That will make the word of God seem dead to you when it really should be alive. Number three, you need to seek to find Jesus and his mercy in every passage. We've kind of covered that already. But seek Jesus. Don't just look for a solution. Look for your Savior. Number four, don't jump ahead to application too quickly. Oh, well, here's what I need to do then. Always look into how, what you're going to apply. Just, just enjoy Jesus for a while. Behold his beauty. And then let the application follow. And number five, Patiently 
and prayerfully meditate on each verse, asking for wisdom. One of the worst things you can do is rush through the Bible. I would rather you eat, read half of a verse and seriously think about it, meditate on it, ruminate on it, and pray about it than to just read six chapters in a day. Take your time and meditate on the word. So we'll continue with the crisis here. It, 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 gets, it goes on with that phrase here. But when these disciples told what had happened, the others, what? Would not believe. Not could not or didn't understand enough. It, it was a cognitive choice that they were making. So afterwards, Jesus appeared to the 11. Because what happened to Judas? Right? He's hanging out somewhere else. And as they were eating, he scolded them. Wow. Tough language. Because they were too stubborn to believe. Raise your hand if you're stubborn. Every hand should be up. Okay? Some of us are more stubborn than others. But human nature is we are all stubborn. We have to learn the same lessons over and over again. And this is what's happening here. And, and they were too stubborn to believe the ones who had seen him. So now there's eyewitnesses of the resurrection. And these people are still choosing not to believe. And he said to them, then are you also without... This is, this is uh, nine chapters ago. He, listen to the directness of Jesus' tone here. Are you guys without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot get him? Jesus is pretty tough, isn't he? He's not holding back any punches here. Verse, and he also talked this way in chapter 8. Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive and understand? Are your hearts hardened? Wow, this isn't mushy, soft, sissy Jesus. You know, blonde hair, blue eyes. Looks like he couldn't lift 100 pounds. This is rugged, tough Jesus in their face. He's all up in their business saying, hey, what's up here, guys? Are you that hard-hearted? Are you that stubborn? You guys stupid or what? Now, that's the Gary translation. But he's talking really direct to him, isn't he? In Matthew 16, listen to how Jesus talks. He says, oh, you have little faith. Now, in church circles, the way we say that, somebody say, oh, bless your heart, honey. <laughs> that's just basically saying, you're so stupid <laughs> you know but it, it's bless your heart but if you're really dumb it's bless your little heart right but that's how we, that's code for you aren't too bright are you this is how Jesus is talking to him it's, Jesus is incredibly direct in Luke he says oh foolish one slow of heart man pretty tough here isn't it in Luke 24 he says why did these doubts rise in your hearts you see Jesus' frustration you see, we need to be thankful and open to the loving but firm correction of Jesus. If you're reading the Bible and it doesn't rub you the wrong way, you're reading it wrong. It should be you rubbing you the wrong way often. But don't close the Bible. Get your heart right. But the Bible should be confronting us. It should be saying, hey, stop that. The book of James says we are looking into the perfect law of liberty like, liberty, liberty, like it's a mirror. And we're like, oh man, that doesn't look good. Look at this dirt on my face. Man, I could comb my hair. I need a shave. Then you walk away and act like nothing ever happened. No, you're supposed to look in the mirror and like Michael Jackson said, and make the change, right? Okay, so he doesn't have the power of the Holy Spirit. We do, right? So we're supposed to make changes. The word of God is supposed to show us what is wrong with us. Now this isn't your best life now preaching, is it? But this is what scripture says we should do. We should be able to confront the, the hard issues why am I not a better husband? Why am I not a dad that I should be? Why do I keep falling into the same sin over and over again? The answer is, the, in the word of God, will help me to see what's wrong with me. But it doesn't just stop there. It says, now here's how you can change it. Here's how you can walk in the footsteps of Jesus and become more like Christ. 
So we had the crisis. They would not believe. Then you have the commission. The commission. Then he told them, go and preach the good news to everyone in the world. Let's just take this apart. He tells them to go. This means you got to go out in the community and get involved. You got to meet your neighbors. You've got to have lunch with your coworkers. You got to invite someone over for a barbecue. You got to get involved. Go out in the world and get involved. Don't just lock yourselves in your suburban houses with your ring and isolate yourself from the rest of the world. Go get involved in, in the lives of other people. Preach. Now, this, this is not just for ordained people, it means to proclaim. You got to, not only have to be involving, you have to get to where you're speaking. You've got to have the courage to speak out about the love of Christ. And then the good news involves knowing. Do you know the good news? What is the good news? It's the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the good news that Jesus has done that for the world, and that's what the world needs to know. And then the everyone means caring. You see, if you don't care, you're going to share it with some, but not with others. And let me tell you something. When you look at someone and say, oh, there's no way they'd ever go to church. There's no way they want to hear about Jesus. They're probably a lot closer than you think. <laughs> Some of the people who are acting out the most, it's because they're really frustrated with God. And if they had the answers, they could be the ones that would turn around. And some people who seem really close to God aren't. And again, we saw that with Jesus' religious community. Who did he go to? The prostitutes and the sinners. And then we talk about the world. That involves giving. Giving your time, giving your money, all these different things like that. Um, here is a map of the world where we have missionaries that we support. And you can see some of the names there, and we want to add to them. We're trying to add new missionaries, a couple every year. In fact, next Sunday, we have a missionary coming uh, from the Philippines, going to the Philippines. But we give so that they can go. How does Revolution Church spread the gospel around the world? By giving to missions. Now, thankfully, we don't have to do it by ourselves. The world would be in a whole heap of trouble if we did it by ourselves. But there are millions of Bible-believing churches who do the same thing. And just imagine all those red dots multiplied by a million, trying to cover the planet with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Jesus said that's one of the signs of his coming, when the gospel of the kingdom we preach to the whole world. And we're seeing the gospel advancing just like Jesus said. So Jesus says this, and some people have trouble with this verse. He said, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Ooh. Again, there's certain denominations who are built on this verse, literally built on this verse. And this is a unique verse because you've seen over and over again, literally 153 times in your New Testament, when it says how to be saved, it says by faith, by believing, by trust, period. The Philippian jailer comes out and Paul, falls down in front of Paul and says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They didn't say believe and get baptized. They said believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Now, this phrase here, again, some skeptics think this is why it doesn't even belong in the Bible, that it's not really a problem. Here's the key thing. It says they will be saved. Well, if you study your Bible carefully, salvation basically has three layers. There's salvation from sin's penalty. The wages of sin is what, folks? Death. But the gift of God is eternal life. Okay? Sin has a penalty. Christ paid the penalty on the cross. But sin still has power. How many of you, since you've been saved, stopped sinning? Anybody? Don't raise your hands by accident. Okay. So you still struggle with sin's power. Guess what? Jesus wants to save you from sin's power. Read 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. It talks about these three types of deliverances. Um, so you still struggle with that. Which one do you think baptism helps you with? Sin's power. You see, you get saved like the thief on the cross, 
You're born again, sin's penalty's been paid. But guess what? You can't get baptized because you're, you're on the cross, okay? So he, but he still goes to paradise. But you and I, we're not on a cross. We can still live life. And the way we get deliverance from sin's power is we obey. And what is the first step that a believer needs to obey? Baptism. So if you've never been baptized since you've been saved, you need to do so. And it, baptism doesn't wash away sins. Jesus' blood did that on the cross. Baptism is your public profession. I Jesus, believe Jesus died for me. He was buried and I'm raised to walk in the newness of life. And so, and of course, since present, someday we'll be saved from this world and when, when Christ comes again and delivers us out of the world. So that's what that verse is talking about here. If you believe you'll be saved from sin's penalty, if you get baptized, you'll be saved from sin's power. But notice the second half of the verse interprets the first half. But whoever does not believe will be condemned. Notice it didn't say, and whoever doesn't believe or get baptized, because if baptism is a requirement, then why is he leaving that out of the second part? So that's pretty obvious right there. 1 Corinthians 1.14 says, Paul says, I thank God I baptized none of you. If baptism equals salvation, why is the greatest evangelist in the world saying, I'm thankful I never baptized any of you? It's because it doesn't, that doesn't matter. He said, I came to preach the gospel and baptism is not part of the gospel. Faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ is the gospel. Baptism is your first step as a new believer after that. So we have the crisis. They didn't want to believe. We have the commission. Go in the world and preach the gospel. And now it brings us to the confirmation. God confirms the word with miracles. Everyone who believes will be able to do wonderful things by using my name. In other, in other words, it's not like Jesus' word is like hocus pocus alexam. You say it magically and it happens. No, my name means under my authority, okay? It's like when a police officer says, stop in the name of the law. In other words, I'm authorized to tell you to stop. They will, there's a list of miracles here. They will force out demons. And again, I think that's why he said Mary Magdalene, who forced out seven, de forced, seven demons were forced out of her. The next one is speaking new tongues. This could be like in Acts chapter 2, where nine different specific languages were able to bridge the communication gap so people could share the gospel with people that they didn't speak the same language with. It could also be, in some people's interpretation, some angelic tongue or whatever. Either way, it was a miracle in this situation. And again, it could be both. They were able to handle snakes and drink poison. Now notice these go together because it says they, 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 they. But here it doesn't go, and they will drink poison. He's going in the category of poison here. Poisonous snakes, poisonous drink. Now, don't, some, there's whole denominations built on this verse alone, and they're called snake handling churches, and they literally will go around handling snakes, and, and they'll act like, you know, it's no big deal, whatever, and some of them die from it, and whatever. That's not what this verse is recommending, okay? In fact, this, this verse is fulfilled in Acts chapter 28. Paul, he's stranded on an island because of a shipwreck, so they were trying to make a fire. He gathers a bundle of sticks and he put them on the fire. Well, in this bundle of snakes, can't talk. A bundle of sticks, there's a snake or a viper. And when he threw it in the fire, the fire scared the snake who came out and it latched onto his hand. But however, you read verse later, he goes off and he shakes it off into the fire and he suffered no harm. Now, when he first got bit, the natives of the island who were superstitious, aha, see, God's judging you. You're fixing to die. We've seen those vipers, and man, you're going to fall down dead. And he's like, ah, whatever. And he shakes it off, and he starts building the fire more, and like, wait, he's not dying. This snake kills people like instantly, and this guy's not dying. Oh, now you're a god. You're No, no, I'm not a god, okay? And he, but he suffered no harm. And here's the fulfillment. Paul didn't go out trying to handle a snake. 
He just happened to get bit by one and his life was saved. And when in the verse says you'll drink poison, how people were often martyred by being forced to drink poison. They could choose their form of execution sometimes. Sometimes it was chosen for them. And drinking poison was often, and he's saying, and this happened in the first century. Some believers were forced to drink poison and they didn't die proving to, to them that they were under the hand of God's protection. So it says they will also heal sick people. Again, Paul and Silas and other dis- apostles and others went around laying on hands on people. And all this was done to confirm that their message was true. And verse 20 tells you that. It says that they went out and they preached everywhere while the Lord, watch this, worked with them. I- I'm so glad that I don't have to do what I do by myself. I have you, but more importantly, I've got the Lord. The Lord says, I'm going to work with you. It's not, I'm going to go up on my throne and sit down and watch and see if you guys do what I say. His Spirit is here with us. The Spirit of Christ working with us and through us. And, it, and also these miracles are confirming the message. Moses goes before Pharaoh. He's just a shepherd. Moses doesn't have a clue. I mean, Pharaoh doesn't have a clue who he is. He says, well, I used to live here, you know, and who knows how that story went down. And he's like, why should I listen to you? And who is your God? This great I am. I don't know who you are. He throws down his shepherd's staff. And what happens? It turns into a snake, ironically. And of course, every one of the miracles that Moses did was to confirm, yes, I am speaking for God. What I am saying is directly a message from God. And so you saw Elijah, Elisha. You saw all these prophets of the Old Testament performing miracles. Not all of them, but the ones that did the purpose was to confirm that, yes, I am a prophet from God. I'm not just some creep out here just talking. So that brings us to the last point, the commitment. There's the crisis, the commission, the confirmation, and now the commitment to the mission. So they went out. They actually had to go. Now, when you and I go, we go to work. We go to the store. We go throughout our neighborhood. We go to Little League. We go that way. These men literally went around the world. In fact, to this day, if you look at the demographics of southern India, it's predominantly Christian because Thomas, doubting Thomas, you can follow the map where he traveled all around east and went all the way down to the tip of southern India preaching the gospel. And to this day, southern India, India is predominantly Christian. And you can meet someone here in America. And if, and if they have a name like Matthew or Thomas, ask them their heritage. And they'll tell you about that. There's churches named after St. Thomas and things like that. These guys literally did walk and traveled around the world doing exactly what Jesus said. And they preached the gospel everywhere while the Lord, again, worked with them. And after the Lord Jesus had said these things to the disciples, he was taken back up to heaven where he sat down at the right hand, right side of God. This, port, this phrase is important because the right side was the side of power. When you go out and preach the gospel and you love your neighbors and you bless your neighbors, you don't have to do it on your own. The one who is seated at the right hand of power is giving you the ability, the equipping to do what he asked you to do. So my question for you this morning is, is do you know him? This, is his, this, this last chapter is for us to get excited about doing as well, but if you don't know him, you don't know that power. I'd like for everyone, if you would, well, I want to share with us the scripture here. It says in John chapter, John chapter 3, whoever believes in the Son has, not will have someday, but has, present tense, eternal life. Eternal life is not something that happens after you die. 
It's something you experience now in your spirit. You will have it in your body at the resurrection. But here's the, Jesus is always giving you both sides of the coin. He doesn't, not just all motion positive. He's, but whoever does not obey the son, notice he shifted from believe to obey. Why is that? Because the proof that you believe is that you obey. If you say, well, I'm saved, but you don't obey, there's a disconnect. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, I thank you so much for your word. Father, I pray that we would be faithful to go and to share the love of Christ with those we come in contact with. And Father, I just pray that there's someone here this morning who's never personally made a decision to accept Christ, that they realize they're a sinner and they realize that Jesus is their only Savior. And they believe that you died, you were buried, and you rose again, literally. Father, I pray that you just not give them any peace until they make that decision. I pray the Spirit of God would remove the blinders from their eyes and that they'd be willing to humble themselves and give their life to you because you gave your life for them. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this gospel of Mark. Lord, thank you that it has brought us closer to you. I pray that this would not just be knowledge in our heads, but it would turn into action in our lives and a change in our hearts. We thank you for the wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you made a decision to trust Christ today, would you let me know? This is my cell phone number. Call or text me. I'd love to have a conversation with you about your next step in, in baptism. And if there's someone you know that you wish was sitting here to hear this message, would you pray and ask God to open the door for you to invite them to join you next Sunday as our church continues to grow? Um, we're going to um, move into question and answer session time right now. So if you have a question, you can text that in anytime. Um, wow, the, the, all the three or four ladies normally help. Linda, can I volunteer? Volunteer told you? Okay. So Linda's going to help me with question and answer. And this will be her mic right here. So there's my cell phone number. Text that in. If you'd rather not text, you just want to raise your hand. You certainly can. But the texting is a way to do it anonymously. And here's my, if, if you choose anonymity. All right. How are you doing this morning, Linda? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Good, good. All right, there you go. I don't know if that's a question or not. I just opened it. Acts 1-5. For John truly baptized with water. But ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. Do you think this is what Mark was talking about when you believe and, and is baptized? I've heard that interpretation before, and um, it could be. There's nothing in the passage that says it is or isn't. And we do know um, that the word baptized means to be immersed or placed into. It's definitely why it's not sprinkling. Okay? So... When you trust Christ, you are immersed in the Holy Spirit. In fact, if, if the Bible says if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not God's children. So it's not like the Holy Spirit, something comes much later. It happens at the moment of salvation. You're filled with the Spirit. That, that how much you're filled as an evidence of salvation is, comes with sanctification. Sometimes the filling doesn't show right away. It, it could be, but I, I'm not going to say it is or it isn't for sure. I believe um, it, in most other passages where they are put together believing in baptism it's usually believers baptism so i would lean towards that one and not towards the other but both are true sure. okay and the bible talks about being baptized into the church you know because so we're not we're not dunking you into a literally group of people it means spiritually you've been placed into this body good good question though 
In Philippians 2, 12 through 13, it says we should work out our salvation and then goes on to say it is God who works in us. How do you explain our role versus God's role in working out our salvation? Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Yeah, it's like a marriage. You can't do it by yourself. You, have to, you do your part, they do their, their part. It's, it's, it's together. You're not married by yourself. And it's interesting about that verse. It says work out your own salvation. It doesn't say work for your salvation. We're saved by grace. Now you've got this salvation in you. Work it out. Let it work out of your life. Let it show. It's not saying work for your salvation. But he's commanding them to do it. But then he says God works in you. Yes, just like the passage said, he works with us. He works with us. So it's God working, you working, and working together. God doesn't force you to do things. And it's interesting because there are times, like remember when the priest came to the water and then God parted it and they walked out? And then another time, there's like Moses like, part the water. And God's like, no, step in the water. <laughs> you do your part, then I'll do mine. And God changes it up. He doesn't do it the same way every time. Um, so uh, there are times when he says, be still. Do nothing, and let me show you that I'm God. Then there's other times he says, okay, take up your swords, let's go, and I'll be with you. So God keeps mixing it up because he doesn't want you to think, oh, I need to do nothing, and God's going to do everything, or I'm going to do everything, and God just bless what I'm doing. No, he says he wants to work with you. And so that, that's beautiful. I'm thankful. That's why Paul told the Corinthian church, we are laborers together with God, which is awesome. Any others? Yes. Uh, on your comment, everyone still sins after salvation. What sin did the thief on the cross commit after he was saved? Oh, wow. I don't know if he had time to do one or not. <laughs> um, it's, in theory, he could have sinned while he was on the cross. Maybe, maybe immediately he started doubting. Am I really going to be in paradise? I don't know. Patrick, what's your opinion? Absolutely. That's true, because we are sinful. Yeah, all our righteousness is filthy rags, yeah. Because even some of the good stuff we do, which is what you're quoting Isaiah 64, 6, we do it with the wrong intention, like, hey, look at me, you know? Look at my offering, hey, everybody, you know? And we, we do good things, and we, like, we even pull over on the side of the road, help someone with a spare tire, and we walk around. I'm so much better than other people. Now, you don't say those exact words, but somewhere in your psyche it's being said. And what... So therefore, the very thing you did could be so selfish that it's better off that you didn't. That's why the Bible says the prayers of the wicked are an abomination. Prayer's a good thing. But when you do it with an evil heart, it, it's not a good thing. So the thief on the cross, I don't know if he sinned or not. It's possible. I mean, again, he's still a sinful person. His soul has been redeemed. His body's about to be redeemed. Continue. Um, could Adam and Eve, could they have sinned before eating the fruit of the tree that God told them not to or when they ate of it. Yes, yes. Um, so God gave them three instructions. Not to eat of the tree of life was only one of them. What other instructions he give them? Take care of the garden. And then what else? Be fruitful and multiply. So there's the three instructions. If they had disobeyed on any of those, they'd be sinning. I want, I'm going to go there. Okay. <laughs> um, I, um, so if they stopped taking care of the garden, 
or they start, stopped trying to be fruitful, whatever. So they, they disobeyed in any one of those, they could have sinned. And by the way, that brings up an interesting point. This is why I believe, and um, some of you know this trivia question, I believe the fall happened within 28 days. Go and figure out why. Okay. Any other questions? That's it. That's it. Yeah. All right. Hey, good job with the questions right there. All right. So next week, I'll give you the answer to why I believe the fall happened in 28, less than 28 days. All right. Let's stand. And we're going to read uh, our, our verse of scripture to, to be dismissed, the verse that we had studied this morning. Let's read this together from Mark chapter 16, verse 15. Then he told them, go and preach the good news to everyone in the world. That's a great way to end, right? God bless you. You're dismissed.